Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today, we're talking The Fund. Rob Copeland's book, Ray Dalio, Bridgewater Associates and the Unraveling of a Wall Street Legend. An extraordinary book filled with revelations about Bridgewater Associates, how its people are managed, the principles, and how or how not the fund makes money. Rob is a finance reporter at the New York Times and previously a longtime hedge fund reporter at the Wall Street Journal. As always, you can really support the show by leaving us a positive review on the platform you're listening on. And I hope you enjoy this rather controversial episode. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So we're talking your book, The Fund, and it's obviously had a big, big impact in the in the financial media. And it's quite I mean, it's going to be very hard to to do it justice in 30 minutes because it's it's quite astonishing, particularly around, I guess, just the people management side and and how strange this this company feels when you when you close the book compared to almost any well, any company that I know. And obviously, you know, and our audience and, and, and we're heavily involved in the commodities trading world. Can you I guess let's start there. It seems like over the sort of the 20 year sort of timeline of the book, there's quite a, a, a transition in Ray Dalio's style and belief in his principles and, and how the company manages itself. Can you just, I guess, let's start perhaps early on. Ray gets his start in commodities. You know, he's very effective at promoting Bridgewater Associates, quite often talking about expected downturns and catches a couple of them right, you know, namely 87. And then when as we'll come on to the financial crisis. But can we just sort of start in the early days and I guess help us understand, I guess, the journey of the principles and how crucial they become to managing uh, and the entire ethos of, the, of this business? Sure. And I think what's important to remember is there's sort of two versions of the principles. There is the version that Ray Dalio talks about publicly and has become sort of world famous for with these TED Talks and this book called, of course, Principles. And then there's how they really existed and exist behind closed doors and how he's sort of wielded and, and weaponized them. But you're, you're correct that you really have to understand the investing a bit to understand why he becomes so, so powerful. And let's give the man some credit. In the, the early days of Bridgewater, in the 70s and, and the 80s, and even at some of his earlier jobs, he really was quite ahead of his time, um, particularly in commodities. He helped companies sort of fix their prices. This now might sound so sort of obvious to an audience that you could use futures in that way, you know, to make sure that, for instance, the price of McDonald's McNuggets doesn't have to go up or down based on the price of the grain that, you know, the chicken is eating. But, you know, 40, 50 years ago, this this was genuinely, I'm going to say revelatory, but I mispronounced that word. His success, which he then turns into this hedge fund Bridgewater and these various funds that it has, it sort of feeds this idea for Ray that there must be an underlying reason to it all. He can't just have been smart or lucky or a combination of the two. And so about two decades ago inside Bridgewater, which is really where most of my book takes place, he starts to talk up these things called principles. And he says, all of my success stems from these so-called 
principles. So everything that the book gets into and sort of the fun and the wildness and the dystopia of it all, none of it would be possible if you weren't incredibly successful as an investor and a trader before, because it wouldn't, he wouldn't be able to justify the behavior that comes later. Yeah, but it's kind of interesting and almost antithetical, right? So he, as you say, he, he starts doing this newsletter, he works for some organizations coming up with at the time, very innovative hedging around, you know, allows McDonald's to launch McNuggets, as you say. But part of his early investing ethos, and really, this is kind of the public perception throughout is that he sort of removes himself and any bias and personal bias he brings to any decision from the process. And he's creating these if this, then this, and a lot of it's around interest rates and GDPs and so forth, that is very attractive to clients and does bring good returns. But and as you say, he sort of then starts to build these principles, which are really just a, a series of maxims that he's sort of, you know, is writing down throughout the working week. And it's like Marcus Aurelius's meditations and you know, arguably equally banal, right? But they, and they, they just, it, suddenly they, they, they start to become foundational and anyone who joins the firm has to learn these principles and in fact the entire sort of assessment of characters and it starts quite early on and progresses is based about how how well they've memorized these principles and how their ability to bring them into argument as as proofs of concept or whatever it might be can you sort of i guess before this starts to get codified into the baseball cards can you sort of give us some sense of how they develop and grow Sure. And so when I started this project in, well, I've been covering Bridgewater for close to 10 years now. I already, I sort of had already heard of the principles and I assumed that there was, that there was a discrete moment when they, when they began, that one day there, there weren't and the next day there were. And part of the discovery of talking to so many people for this book was that like you said, Ray had been talking up for decades, this idea that he is totally dispassionate um, in his investing and that he's conquered his base instincts, you know, and that he can be unemotional about things. And when he first starts talking about these sets of rules, these, these principles, he draws this direct connection to the investing practices of Bridgewater. He says, the investing practices of Bridgewater are unemotional, and so should our management practices. And so he starts with, you know, just a few pages of this is how you should act to make sure that you get the best um, out of the people who work for you. This is how you should, you know, encourage direct feedback. And and none of it is on its face crazy at the start. You know, I think a lot of us can agree that it's better to have work and life relationships where people can be honest with one another. And that maybe there are moments in our life when we can be uh, a little roundabout instead of just giving the, the direct feedback. And even one of his favorite maxims, his favorite principles, which is pain plus reflection equals progress, you know, on its face, that really is relatable and true in a lot of aspects of life. There are sometimes are times when you do have to go through pain um, and in the end you do see, see progress. And the real wildness to it all is just how it just goes completely off the rails. And it really does go completely off the rails i mean it's extraordinary this transparency library these management principles training and so forth i mean you tell this story kind of rather fascinatingly through james comey latterly head of the fbi and and, and so forth all those issues that came up but you know very very well respected republican southern district of new york attorney joins 
joins Bridgewater, and within kind of like we'll tell his story because in the in the first couple of weeks he's like this is madness and you know no one pretty believes this and by the end of it he's sort of the arch enforcer building surveillance throughout the offices i mean it's can you tell us that story because i think that that sort of really powerful microcosm of of that transition sure so and again we we should keep following the through line here which is that ray claims that the reason for his success and the reason for bridgewater's investing success is that it's completely transparent internally and that he can see the reason for the rules, et cetera, et cetera. So he begins to apply this to management. And in order to have what he then begins to call so-called radical transparency, he and Bridgewater begin taping everything at the firm, not just you know the big meetings, but the small ones. If it were just the two of us sitting in a room, we'd hit record or the room would already be wired for recording. And the tape of us talking to one another would be uploaded to what Bridgewater calls its transparency library. So that an hour afterwards, a year afterwards, 10 years afterwards, someone could pull it up and sort of hold us to account for whether things are going right or wrong. Now, to sort of enforce this huge operation now of of listening in on people, uh, Bridgewater hires Jim Comey. This is before Jim becomes FBI director, but it's it's after he's pretty famous. He's already been a famous prosecutor in New York, and they pay him $7 million a year, and they, they call him the godfather at the firm. And it's his job to investigate people for issues large and small. Probably my one of my favorite anecdotes in the book is Jim Comey gets assigned to investigate a Bridgewater employee not over true malfeasance, but over whether she brought in bagels to the office on the day that she promised to bring in bagels. Now, remember, this is Bridgewater. This is radical transparency. Ray's principles would say there's no such thing as a truly small mistake, that there must be a reason why she made this mistake, why she didn't bring in the bagels, and it must say something larger about her. And Look, when I first heard this story from uh, someone who knew a lot about it, I just assumed it must have been an overstatement. You know, it just sounds so ridiculous. You don't bring in bagels on the right day. And Jim Comey brings the, the force of God down on you. And I spoke to so many people and they all told me the same thing. Nope, it was really, it really started with the bagels. And it just, uh, it just rolled on from there. We also have, the, we've mentioned it just now the baseball cards which is again an evolution of okay well if you've got these principles and this mm. radical transparency and this ability to turn everything into notionally into an algorithm there's this design or this idea that we can start scoring one another on all of these different attributes those attributes change over time but essentially embracing radical transparency we should be able to score everyone at all times and you know this is the baseball the very famous baseball cards which which evolve over time hmm. can you can you help us understand what they are and i mean the human element of this just makes me think it must have been absolutely awful working in this environment which is no no mistake that uh, ray also goes to China a fair bit and you know there's a there's a there is a tie up there with the the social scores that 
China was developing at the time as well. But help us understand what were those baseball cards and their sort of endpoint at this pre-OS system where we were walking around with iPads, basically sort of, you know, rating down colleagues who, who uh, said something they didn't like. So to sort of understand how the rating system starts, it's almost like the principles. You have to understand that it starts almost logically. If you start with the principles and you say that badness must be held to account, Ray starts to develop this idea that we should be able to rate one another in various categories so that we can figure out which of us are good at certain things and which of us are are good at other things. That's not an insane idea on its face. But over years and spending more than $100 million, he starts to develop what he calls a baseball card system, which is that... If you picture a baseball card, it has, you know, your picture on one side of it of a sports player, a baseball player, and on the back it has, you know, your RBIs or your other stat count. The stats that Ray starts collecting is personal ratings of every employee at Bridgewater in dozens of categories so that I could look at my baseball card and yours right now and we could say, hey, Paul is rated pretty well on listening, but he's pretty low on um, thinking through to find the truth or something like that. And this would just go on and on. And at any moment in this conversation or even afterwards, if someone were listening to the recording of this, they could go in and they could rate us and it would continue to change our stats on these baseball cards. Just imagine you're sitting in a meeting. It's got 10 or 20 people on it. You are expected in that moment to be rating everyone else on what turned out to be close to 100 different categories, and they're rating you, and it's all happening in in real time. It's quite a mess. And it, it ends up, you know, IBM Watson's involved, you know, some very bright people, and they're also essentially saying this sort of, it ends up at this independent variable of believability, which even their own employees, you know, very dangerously in Bridgewater are saying it doesn't really actually make any sense. There's no actual, there's no actual correlation between performance and these scores, right? I mean, it's, it becomes purely essentially, it is both the sort of enforcer of corporate culture, as well as this, the, the most important, you know, metric of performance, even though the outcomes aren't clearly there. Exactly. So this is actually the notion of believability is something that Ray has become quite famous for. Um, it's it's the subject of his his most watched TED talk. And when he describes believability, he describes it as not everyone's vote should be counted equally. This isn't a pure democracy. Someone who is rated more what he calls believable in certain categories should have their ratings of other people carry more weight. And again, this on its face, okay, if you had a true genius at investing, maybe that person's vote on investing should have counted more. But I'll spoil a bit of the book for you, but it's okay because I sort of spoil it in the introduction to the book. This whole system is rigged from the start to keep Ray Dalio at the top of so-called believability in virtually all important categories. And what it really is, is just a not even particularly sophisticated attempt to reprove over and over again that Ray Dalio is the greatest. And that's the system that he builds. And to this day, he either won't 
or can't admit that. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. And there's so much in the book about, and it's, it is, again, it's just fascinating. Why do you think, because time and again, there are stories in the book, people you've interviewed, who basically have lasting trauma as a result of a particular you know i mean there are inquisitions here time and time again on people's minor infractions that are really intense experiences for all involved yet a lot of them continue to stay on a lot of them aren't you know a lot of people are talking anonymously to you why how do you think this at its peak 2000 employees how a how are they staying there and b how has this story not really escaped bridgewater until now well, just to address one thing there, they're only talking to me anonymously because Bridgewater and Ray Dalio is making them talk to me anonymously. There is an incredible culture of secrecy there. They force everyone to sign uh, very strict NDAs. They pay other people extra money to sign what are known as non-disparagement agreements, which basically mean that you can't even say the truth about your experience if it's in any way negative. So that, that is why I had to rely a bit on anonymity in, in the book. But as for the reason why people put themselves through it, it's, it's really quite fascinating and it's, it's double-legged. It, it's, on one hand, remember, people are getting paid. This is a hedge fund. It's the world's largest. There's virtually limitless money to pay people to stay. And you know, and I know, that there are a certain... There are not even a certain, there are a good number of people on Wall Street and and beyond who will uh, do pretty much anything for a paycheck. But Bridgewater promises something even larger, which is that Ray Dalio's principles and his whole public persona, they promise this this self-improvement. Follow these principles and you will achieve a higher level version of yourself. And so to leave Bridgewater is to admit that you are giving up on that opportunity. And that can be very, very difficult for people. And to come full circle, really, if you are experiencing distress and trauma, and you're right that a lot of people in the book do, Ray has a principle for that. He just tells you over and over again, pain plus reflection equals progress. Mm. There's no amount of pain that he can't justify with that principle. And what he so infrequently says is that it's he who is inflicting the pain on you. Yeah. I mean, the, the overriding sort of walk away is how cult-like the descriptions from the book feel, right? In terms of, you know, why are people staying and the control of that one leader and how powerful and talismanic that one leader is to the organization. What's fascinating here is it is the world's large, biggest hedge fund. And there is a correlation between it would, you know, well, first question I would say is at its peak, there's, you know, 2000 employees so so few i think you note in the book 20 percent of people were actually involved in sort of in investigating investment decisions it you know it, you wonder what the rest are doing but there's just this tiny inner circle of people who are actually making these trades and these trades are quite um, they're 
not very transparent to the market. And there have been a number of questions asked by different participants and in SEC regulations over, you know, how exactly they're making money. But long-winded question is sort of, can you just give us your sense of, of how the actual the business of investing happens at the company? And we'll go from there. So I would say, first of all, it's unquestionable that the business of investing has not been Ray Dalio's animating focus for many decades now. Ever since he invented the principles about two decades ago, that's been what he spent the vast majority of his time at Bridgewater talking about and developing. Now, so far as the investing goes, there's sort of the version that Bridgewater says about it publicly, and there's the version that actually happens. What what they describe publicly is this sort of um, unemotional, systematic, rules-based approach. And there's a lot of firms on Wall Street that um, that make a similar pitch, uh, which basically say that there's no one man who controls any of this. But what I found out in my sort of, honestly, it took years to figure out, is that to Ray Dalio, a rule is just something that he thinks up in his head. So it's a rules-based approach if Ray says it's going to happen and that he has overruled the systematic Bridgewater investing process far, far more often than the firm has admitted publicly. And as that perception has grown, because this has been a 20-year journey, the same with the principles, right, on the investing side, that belief in oneself, results have, have tailed off significantly, in fact, far behind the S&P 500, many times in the 2010s as well, right? I mean, the, the, the sort of the magic and the luster when you actually dig into the results has, has drifted as well. Oh, gosh, yeah, it's been a, just an absolutely brutal stretch for them since the 2008 financial crisis. And in just classic Ray Dalio Bridgewater fashion, every time they have an unimpressive year, which has been most of the years for the last decade and a half, he says, oh, no, the system is working exactly as planned. We are just learning more about our about our investment process, and every time we get it wrong, that's another data point for us. And it's sort of easy to you know mock that as a as a marketing pitch, but it works fabulously well because he's made himself famous for these principles and this so-called unemotional investment process. They're a little bit smaller than they used to be. They're about 125 billion. Last I checked. At peak, they were close to 170 billion. That's still a ton of money for a firm that has that has come nowhere near matching not just the S and P 500, but any reasonable benchmark of a mix of stocks and bonds. Yeah, it's fascinating because as an outsider, you know, my perception of Bridgewater over the last decade is everyone in in the commodities world sort of sees them as this paragon of systematic trading. You know, they have the best and the brightest there. They've got black boxes that, you know, and it's and all of that is somewhat, you know, this Wizard of Oz Emperor's New Clothes, which kind of comes up these Emperor's New Clothes time and time again in the book. And well, can you know, I, I challenge guess, you on something? Yeah, yeah. And I, I I agree with you. The they have this reputation of this of this system, but who's ever seen it? Who are these? If they have this reputation in the commodities world and elsewhere, who's ever seen the system? Who's ever um, got the actual evidence of it? It requires this incredible leap of faith from all of us just to believe that this system exists. And I did a ton of research, and what I came up with were many, many instances of Ray 
overruling the so-called system. That's mm. that's the truth. Yeah, yeah. And what are one bit? I, I guess I didn't get my hands around was what are the other, I guess, eighteen hundred people at Bridgewater doing then? Oh gosh, well they're doing what we what we talked about. They're they're listening in on the transparency library and they're rating one another and they are investigating one another for not bringing in in bagels and such. There's a a line in the book that I quite enjoy. It's a quote from a very high level staffer who is leaving and he tells his boss, "This is a hedge fund with a kibbutz attached." He says, "You know, this is this isn't a pure investment fund." And Look, that's what has brought Ray great joy for the last two decades. He literally said recently in an interview, he said, it's been my joy, a joy for all of us, and I just want to pass it along. And I think it'd be tough to read this book and to say that it's been a joy for anyone other than Ray Dalio. Yeah. And it's so dystopian as well. I mean, it's, again, it's no coincidence that Ray, you know, was taking a lot of cues from China and, and, and so forth. And I mean, absolutely, again, sort of gobsmacking. Before, I know you, you don't have too much time. Obviously, you've, you've received a lot of pushback, again, from what I've read. None of it really seems to be substantiated. There's just sort of this vacuum of information out there. And, and I guess it is a, a very challenging for people who, have put Ray on this pedestal and Bridgewater Associates on a pedestal in terms of results to have this sort of stark view of of how dystopian it is. Can you just give us some sense of what pushback you've had and, and how you've been addressing it? Yeah, you know, it's been remarkable. I receive a lot of messages from people saying, oh, I always suspected something like this. But I've also received a lot of messages from people saying, you know, why are you trying to tear down this successful guy? Have you made it like your mission or something to go after him? And I, I just have to tell people, I honestly just went into this and tried to collect as many true stories of what Ray Dalio and the principals are like in action. And I can tell you that inside Bridgewater to this day, there are very few people who actually believe the public version of this fairy tale that he's that he's told and continues to tell. They've all put up with it, but no one seems to really believe it except for Ray himself. Now, like I, like we've mentioned a few times, there is this transparency library, this, this trove of recordings. And Bridgewater and its lawyers, while I was working on this book, they kept threatening me and they kept, you know, they threatened me with a multi-billion dollar lawsuit. And they kept saying, you've got it wrong, you've got it wrong. And I just kept saying, okay, play me the recordings. You've got the recordings. Release the recordings right now. You've got the book out now, so you can just release the recordings. And they're just not willing to let people hear the truth. And that's because the truth would be terrifically embarrassing, not just for Ray, but for the current leadership of Bridgewater Associates. Mm. And in fact, actually, you mentioned toward the end of the book that actually they started to realize that that transparency library was probably a huge liability. There's quite an interesting anecdote with the Harvard Business Review that had access to all the tapes and then suddenly taken away. Um, You know, that that library itself is, is being curtailed, right, at this point? They've told staff that it's being curtailed. There's definitely less available to staff. From what I know about Bridgewater and Ray Dalio, I would be surprised if they had truly deleted the tapes and that you couldn't access them. Look, Ray has threatened to release tapes of me. So I don't know. I can't really believe that there aren't tapes of everyone else. 
But, you know, you should just really ask yourself if you're if you're making yourself out to be a paradigm of radical transparency, why won't you let people actually view and listen what you're actually like behind closed doors? Yeah, well, it is a fascinating read. I would encourage all of our listeners to go get a copy. The The Fund, Ray Dalio, Bridgewater Associates and the Unraveling of a Wall Street Legend. It is controversial, but it is, A, it's very well written. B, it's just absolutely a sort of astonishing what's in there. And I think it's a, a an excellent piece of investigative journalism. And, um, you know, I wish you, well, you really had great success with the book. So thanks for coming on, Rob. We can have more success. We can keep selling books. Don't worry. <laughs> this is, uh, <laughs> but yes, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.